thank you for joining for this POGO phone briefing on uh, an overview of some of the major cases that may have a direct impact on your work. Um, I'm proud to be joined by uh, Michael Stern and Stephen Vladek, who are both experts in their own right um, on these issues. Um, while we wait for Mike to join, uh, I think we're going to uh, let Steve start. But first, let me give you a few notes about them. Um, you may already have the handout that you received in front of you. So you know that uh, Professor Vladek is at the University of Texas School of Law. Um, that he, you may have seen him on CNN as a Supreme Court analyst. You may have listened to his National Security Law podcast. You may have seen him on Twitter, where I enjoy his commentary very, very much. He's a graduate of Yale Law School. Uh, Mike Stern is an attorney specializing in legal issues affecting Congress. He has a career of service uh, in the upper and lower chambers. Uh, from 1996 to 2004, he was the deputy staff director for, excuse me, he was the senior counsel for the House of Representatives. Uh, afterward, he was the deputy staff director for investigations for the Senate Committee on Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs, and later special counsel to the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. We're very fortunate to have the two of them here. Um, and um, do we have Mike on the line with us now? Okay. Um, well, Steve, maybe you can uh, you can begin for us uh, with an overview of some of the cases that you're looking at. Sure. Um, thanks so much, uh, Justin, for organizing this. Thanks to all of you for taking the time. Um, let me apologize a bit in advance. I'm, I'm suffering from a bout of strep, so uh, hopefully, hopefully I will be intelligible or at least understandable. Um, Hi. So what, is, sorry. Um, I'm sorry, Steve. It's Mike Stern. I just want to let you know I'm here. I, I apologize too. So thanks, Mike. Go, go ahead. <laughs> all right. So with the so with the apologies out of the way, we we, we you know, we'll apologize for the content later. Um, the the way that Mike and I thought we might divvy this up is I was going to start by giving an update on where um, really two of the biggest cases um, about the scope of Congress's investigative authority um, as an abstract proposition are. Um, they're now, as of about half an hour ago, both in the Supreme Court. Um, Mike's going to then turn to um, cases that are about more specific assertions of immunity and or privileges against otherwise facially valid subpoenas. Um, and then there'll be a little bit of time, hopefully, um, at the end for a couple of sort of wild card cases. And then um, we have, we've received some questions that you guys submitted to Justin that we'll try to address as well. So um, I think that the two of the three cases that are now before the Supreme Court are, at least from my perspective, probably the biggest in this space insofar as they raise fundamental questions about the scope of Congress's subpoena power. Um, some of these, you know, may be pretty familiar to you guys, and I apologize if this is pretty basic. But so the Mazars case um, is probably the first one that that is worth talking about. Um, this is the a case arising out of a subpoena issued by the House Oversight Committee to Mazars um, for financial records in Mazars's possession relating to President Trump, um, both before he was president and while he was president. Um, uh, the House Committee basically sought to enforce the subpoena. Um, President Trump then sued Mazars, um, basically a sort of um, unconventional but not unheard of um, third-party suit against the recipient of a subpoena. Um, the district court refused to bar uh, or refused to grant President Trump's request for an injunction against the subpoena. Um, that decision was appealed to the D.C. Circuit. Um, back in October, on October 11th to be uh, precise, um, a divided panel of the D.C. Circuit agreed with the district court um, and basically upheld the subpoena, rejecting President Trump's argument that Congress lacked the power to issue a subpoena 
um, in the context of regular oversight that would ultimately sweep in personal records of the president. Um, some of you may well know that the majority opinion by Judge David Tatel was over a pretty sweeping dissent by uh, Judge Naomi Rao, who, um, it should be said, is President Trump's uh, nominee to take the seat uh, vacated by now Justice Kavanaugh. Um, and Judge Rao's dissent is actually pretty striking in what it argues, um, basically that um, Congress cannot issue these kinds of subpoenas um, outside of the context of a formal impeachment inquiry. Basically, if Congress is seeking information relating to potentially criminal activity by any federal officer who is subject to impeachment, which is just about every federal officer in the executive branch and judicial branch, um, then Congress's only mechanism is to issue the impeachment after and as part of a formal impeachment inquiry, which Judge Rao said can only come on the far side of a formal inquiry authorizing vote, um, never mind the absence of any constitutional or statutory requirement for such a vote. Um, anyway, so that was the decision from October. Um, that decision, the, uh, the President Trump then asked the D.C. Circuit to rehear that decision on Bonk. Um, on November 13th, the full D.C. Circuit declined um, to step in and take the case up on Bonk, this time over um, three dissents in addition to Judge Rao. Um, Judge Katzis and Judge Henderson also both dissented, so it was um, eight to three in denying rehearing on Bonk. Um, President Trump then asked the Supreme Court to issue a stay of that decision and basically to put the subpoena on hold pending his um, filing of a petition for certiorari, pending his asking the Supreme Court to take that case up. Um, the Supreme Court, as you guys probably know, last week um, granted the stay, but um, required President Trump to file a cert petition by noon yesterday. Um, and the reason why that's important is because under the Supreme Court's rules, um, President Trump would have otherwise had 90 days to file a cert petition by ordering him to file by yesterday. Um, the Supreme Court has basically made it possible for the justices to decide whether or not to take up his appeal in the Mazars case, probably by the middle of January. Um, and that's usually the court's effective, not formal deadline for taking the case and still hearing it this term. So if the court decides it wants to take up the Mazars case, um, it's, li it's left itself the ability to do so probably with an April argument and a decision by the end of June. Um, and I think part of why I, I, it's worth leading with this case is because as much as any of the cases we're going to talk about, it's the Mazars case that represents, I think, the most frontal assault on the idea that Congress has the power to issue subpoenas to executive branch officers that may or may not relate to criminal conduct um, outside of the impeachment setting. I think it should be pretty obvious why you know, a holding one way or the other on that question is going to have pretty significant implications um, for the relationship between Congress and the executive branch going forward. Um, the second one of these big cases, the one that just reached the Supreme Court, um, is the Deutsche Bank case. Um, this is also a subpoena from uh, Congress to uh, Deutsche Bank and Capital One, again, for personal financial records of President Trump and several of his um, business entities. Um, this was a uh, case that was decided by the Second Circuit, the Federal Appeals Court in New York, just this Tuesday um, in a 165-page decision. Um, again, a divided panel largely sided with Congress and um, rejected most of President Trump's core arguments against the validity of the subpoena um, and the propriety of Congress issuing such subpoenas outside the context of a formal impeachment inquiry. 
Um, there was a dissent, again, this one by Judge Deborah Livingston, but this dissent was much narrower than Judge Rao's dissent in the D.C. Mazars case. Um, most of Judge Livingston's objections were to or were centered on the idea that the subpoenas in the New York case um, were overbroad um, and that because the majority had already held that there were a couple of things the district court needed to clean up in the subpoenas on remand, she just would have had the district court go further on remand um, and narrow the subpoenas a bit further, require a bit more of a showing from the House or at least a bit more specificity in the requests from the House. Um, so that's a different kind of argument um, than the sort of structural argument about Congress's power or lack thereof that was at the center of the D.C. case. Anyway, um, the reason why I think the Deutsche Bank case is especially relevant is because President Trump, just about 45 minutes ago, um, asked the Supreme Court to stay that decision as well, again, pending the disposition of a cert petition. Um, this case is, a, is different from Mazars, I think, in one very important respect, which is um, even on the majority opinion in that case, this was still going to have to go back to the district court for further proceedings. That is to say, you know, the, the subpoena being enforced was not going to be the next step here. And so it's possible that the Supreme Court um, could be less inclined to grant a stay here if only because the justices might see it as premature. Um, on the flip side, um, with the cert petition in Mazars now having been filed uh, yesterday, um, the court may also see these cases as being sufficiently of a piece um, that even though there are some differences and even though the Second Circuit case comes in more of an interlocutory posture, um, it's not impossible to imagine once the stay application papers are all the way in, the justices seeing this as worth treating together with the Mazars case. And if they're inclined to take up the Mazars case, actually having these cases granted and argued together because they raise similar structural issues but where it, but the Second Circuit case raises some more specific questions about how well tailored these precise subpoenas were. Um, so from the perspective of the scope of Congress's investigative authority and what a legitimate legislative purpose is, you know, I think those are um, the big two. I think the only other one I'll mention, and I think Mike was also going to talk about this, is you know, there are several cases, obviously, involving the House Ways and Means Committee, um, including the suit that the Ways and Means Committee brought directly against the Department of the Treasury um, seeking President Trump's tax returns. Um, and I think, you know, that case, which is still in the district court, um, I think is looking very much like it is going to be subsumed um, within the broader questions the court's going to be asked to decide in the Mazars and Deutsche Bank cases, assuming the Supreme Court is going to take up at least the Mazars case. And I do think that's likely at this point. Um, you know, I think it's it's probably the case that nothing will much will happen in the ways and means case um, while everyone waits to see what the justices are going to do. So, you know, Mike, that's 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 sort of where I think it's probably worth stopping in the, the brief capsule summary of the big sort of scope of authority cases. Um, maybe now's a good time for you to dive in on the, the more specific immunity and privilege claims. Great. Uh, I will do that. Thank you, Steve, very much. Uh, yeah, so let me start off by just agreeing um, with Steve about the Ways and Means case. Uh, that is the uh, case that the committee brought against the, um, the, the Department of the Treasury and the IRS seeking uh, president's tax returns, both under uh, 26 U.S.C. 6103F and, uh, and by subpoena. That, that case was uh, assigned to Judge McFadden who seems inclined to wait as far as the 
the big issue in that case is, or the merits of that case uh, go to whether there was a legitimate legislative purpose to the, to the subpoena, to the committee's request, basically. And the judge seems inclined to think that Deutsche Bank and Mazars could very well uh, affect his decision on that. He said as much in a scheduling order over the summer. So he will, he's, appears to be disinclined to move very quickly on, on the merits. He has heard argument on standing, which is another very important issue in, in that case. But as I will mention in a moment, I think he may be also waiting to see what the D.C. Circuit does in uh, the next case, which we'll talk about, which is the McGann case. So the Committee on the Judiciary has brought suit against the former White House counsel, Don McGahn, who refused to appear before the committee uh, on matters related to the Mueller report based on a longstanding executive branch theory that certain senior White House advisors are absolutely immune from, uh, from compelled congressional process. Basically, they do not, have, regardless of what it is that they know, how important it is, whether they're the only witnesses to it, uh, they are absolutely immune, according to a series of OLC opinions, uh, from having to appear before Congress. Now, that theory was rejected in the only other case to ever present it, uh, which was uh, in uh, 2007, a ruling by uh, J judge Bates, the district court judge, uh, another district court judge in in uh, D.C., but the case never reached the uh, appellate stage or was never decided on the, on the merits by the D.C. Circuit. So the executive branch has continued to maintain their position, even though it was rejected by the only court to have heard it. Now, uh, the, the uh, Committee on the Judiciary brought this suit against former White House Counsel McGahn. Uh, the case was heard by uh, Judge Jackson, another, uh, another uh, federal judge here in DC, who also rejected it, basically saying in somewhat greater length, uh, the exact same things that Judge Bates said uh, 10, 12 years ago. And, uh, and that case now has been appealed to the DC Circuit and it has been stayed administratively pending briefing and the oral argument, which is scheduled for January 3rd. Now the McGann case, in addition to this absolute immunity issue, which while I am loath to give any guarantees, I would be very surprised if the DC circuit uh, rejected the uh, position of uh, judges Jackson and Bates uh, and agreed with the uh, with the Justice Department on the merits of this case, but there is also uh, some very serious issues regarding standing and uh, justiciability and uh, whether there's a cause of action, basically. So basically, whether Congress has the right to sue, just as a matter of, of constitutional standing, has has the right to sue to get information at all, or has the right to sue the executive branch in particular is one issue presented, then there's a question of whether the uh, existing statutory schemes provide for the court to take uh, jurisdiction over that 
dispute, even if it's constitutionally permissible. Now, that issue, of course, would also be an issue in the Ways and Means case, though Judge uh, McFadden may be waiting to hear also what the D.C. Circuit says about that. Now, I do believe that the court is acting, uh, moving expeditiously to address this case. Uh, so I think we will get a ruling. Like I said, the hearing's on January 3rd. I think we can expect a ruling relatively quickly, but of course there will still be the opportunity for uh, whoever loses to seek uh, review by the Supreme Court. And even if the, case, the, the Committee on the Judiciary wins and gets a final judgment on the merits, the uh, effect of that is only to require McGann to actually show up. The, it doesn't mean that he has to answer any particular questions. He still has the ability to assert executive privilege, even under Judge Jackson's ruling. So it could be a long time before that actually produces useful information uh, for the House. It, however, could also have some impact on a couple of other White House officials who have uh, been uh, indicated to be important witnesses in the ongoing impeachment inquiry. One of those is Charles Kupperman, who was the deputy national security advisor. The, uh, actually I'm, I'm trying to remember, I guess it was the intelligence committee that originally subpoenaed him to come and give a deposition. The, he then responded by bringing his own suit, basically interpleading the, the House and the president and, and essentially saying, look, I have been instructed by the president not to testify. Uh, and the House says that I am required to appear. So I am under these conflicting obligations. I want you court to tell me what to do. The lawyers who represent government also represent John Bolton, who is in probably an even more important potential witness. However, the House decided that it did not want to get bogged down in this lawsuit, presumably because of the, the kind of time constraints we've already talked about. Uh, and so they withdrew the subpoena to Kupperman. Somewhat, perhaps to everyone's surprise, Kupperman, however, did not say, okay, thank you very much. I am, I am leaving. He, uh, he decided to continue his suit. And so far, Judge Leon, to whom the case was assigned, has allowed the part or required the parties to go forward and brief it, uh, even though it would appear on its face to be rather moot. And both the House and the Justice Department, uh, unusually, are in complete agreement on one point, which is that government really doesn't have a reason to be in court. Uh, nonetheless, Judge Leon seems to be interested in this case and one cannot completely rule out the possibility that we could get an interesting decision from him. The case is actually uh, to be argued on December 10th, so next week. And uh, even if Judge Leon ultimately decides that he cannot reach the merits of the case, he could uh, still uh, decide some important points. For example, one of the questions presented or that could be presented is, as to whether Kupperman has standing is whether the president actually has the right to direct officials and particularly former officials not to testify. In other words, 
do they have some sort of obligation to to follow the president's direction, even if they themselves haven't concluded that there's an applicable privilege or immunity involved? And that could be relevant to the standing issue, and that actually would have quite broad implications if the court were to say that actually the president does not have that right. Um, and it could affect other witnesses, for example, like um, uh, uh, Mr. Bolton. So then the last uh, case that I'm gonna discuss really quickly, and then we'll uh, move to some back and forth, uh, is the case of the Judiciary Committee brought seeking access to grand jury materials underlying the Mueller report. That, uh, that is not a, a typical civil action. That is simply an application that one makes to the chief judge who supervises the uh, grand jury uh, in, in, that was the grand jury that was convened in the Mueller case. And uh, they have, they have uh, moved uh, for getting access to certain materials that would otherwise be protected under Rule 6E. Now, there has been a long-standing practice of, uh, of Congress being able to get grand jury materials in connection with, uh, with impeachment inquiries. Uh, that happened in the Clinton case. It happened in the Nixon case. Uh, and there have been several less, uh, less well-known impeachments where uh, Congress was able to get access to grand jury materials. However, the Justice Department, which previously had acknowledged that this was a proper uh, application under Rule 6E, has now taken the position that a impeachment proceeding cannot be considered a judicial proceeding within the uh, meaning of Rule 6E, and therefore that there actually is no way for Congress to get grand jury material for impeachment or for any other purpose, uh, no matter how relevant it is. Now, Chief Judge Howell wrote a, a uh, lengthy opinion rejecting that uh, argument in, in October. And the uh, they, the uh, Justice Department has now appealed that ruling to the D.C. Circuit, and that argument has also been scheduled for uh, January 3rd. And probably if there was one case that is most likely to produce information in a period of time when the House might be able to use it, uh, it's probably that one, uh, because I think the, uh, I think the, uh, the arguments for the House are, are very strong, and I don't know that the Supreme Court will be interested in reviewing it, even if uh, as probably the Justice Department would uh, try to take that to the Supreme Court if they lose, but, um, but I think there's a reasonable chance that that would be that the court would not even take that up. So with that, uh, let me uh, go back to Steve and see if he has any comments he would like to add. Let me see if I can grab the mic here real quickly. Um, Mike, uh, did you want to touch at all on any of the emoluments cases that are coming up? I know that there are some key dates that are coming up in the next week or two. For a couple yeah, of I, can, I can do that. I just didn't want to use up all of the uh, time. Uh, okay, so very, I'll just very quickly uh, mentioned that there are three separate cases that uh, challenge the president's uh, alleged taking of emoluments in violation of both the domestic and foreign emoluments clauses of the Constitution. 
two of those cases, well, one case involves uh, private parties in that it brought suit in uh, New York. Uh, one case involves the uh, governments of Maryland and the District of Columbia who brought suit in Maryland. And the third one involves members of Congress who brought suit in uh, DC. Two of those cases are scheduled to be argued uh, next week, actually. Uh, the the uh, congressional case is going to be argued on December 9th uh, before the Fourth Circuit and Bonk. Uh, that will uh, uh, that case was dismissed for lack of standing, uh, and the uh, or the Fourth Circuit panel had basically held that that there was no standing in that case. The, the, the full court is now going to rehear that and bonk. And then, um, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I got that mixed up. The, the, uh, oh, I'm sorry. No, that's right. That is on December 9th. And then on December 12th, the, uh, no, sorry. Let me, let me try that one more time. Four circuits going to hear the case, the case I just mentioned, which is the DC and Maryland suit. Uh, uh, on December 12th. On December 9th, the D.C. Circuit is going to hear uh, the congressional case, Blumenthal v. Trump. And that presents, at this point, the, the main issue uh, will be whether or not the members of Congress have standing to bring the suit. And that does, have, that does not involve institutional standing, as in the other cases where the committees have brought suit, because this is a suit brought by members of Congress but it still could have an effect uh, both on whether individual members of Congress have a narrow window to bring certain suits uh, based on their, on their official injuries to their official uh, duties. And uh, also it could have, it could bleed over potentially to the broader issues of institutional standing. So that's probably the most immediate effect of, of, of that that case could have. So, let me let me end there, Justin. That's great. Well, and that's quite a calendar. I guess we have coming up with uh, hearings in the emoluments uh, cases on uh, December 9th and 12th, and we've got the Kupperman hearings sandwiched in the middle, uh, and the 10th, and then we have those back-to-back -back hearings in early January. Uh, so it's uh, I guess a lot of action um, right here around the holidays, uh, and right around the impeachment vote itself and the shift to the Senate. Um, I wanted to ask both of you, I'll start with Steve and then go to Mike, um, the same question. Of the cases that we've gone through here, which do you think pose the most immediate or realistic threat to congressional oversight authorities? Well, I mean, I, I think hopefully, I, I hopefully this came through off the top. I really do think the Mazars case is probably the biggest of all of these because, you know, short of um, a court recognizing the kind of absolute immunity that Don McGahn at all have been claiming that Mike talked about. I think, you know, a decision that could potentially limit Congress's power to issue subpoenas as part of its regulatory and oversight function, as opposed to, you know, subsequent to the initiation of a formal impeachment inquiry, I think could be a real setback um, and obviously a, a strong um, sort of fulcrum and inflection point when it comes to, you know, sorting out Congress's power vis-a-vis -vis the executive branch. Um, you know, I, I think it's not likely that the court's going to end up there, but I think, you know, it's, it's likely enough that it's worth watching. Um, 
you know, in contrast, for example, to, you know, like the Vance case where, you know, if the, if, if the worst thing that happens is that the Supreme Court says, us, you know, a, a local prosecutor can't issue a subpoena for, you know, the president's financial records, I don't think that the sky falls from a separation of powers perspective. So at least to me, you know, Mazars, and then I guess to a lesser degree, the Deutsche Bank case, because again, the, the arguments there are so much more specific. Um, Mazars is, I think, the big kahuna, and I think the, the justices are probably going to think the same thing. Mike, what about you? So uh, I, I, it's hard to identify one biggest threat. I, it, I, I agree with Steve that if, if the court, if the Supreme Court were to decide Mazars on the grounds that Judge Rao would have them decided, uh, then that would be a huge uh, threat to congressional oversight because basically her position was that you can't investigate wrongdoing in the executive branch without starting an impeachment proceeding, uh, which that would be an enormous, uh, that would be an enormous effect on congressional oversight. I doubt that's going to happen. And so if Mazars, if Mazars were decided on some of the, uh, even the ground that the president's own lawyers uh, asserted there, which is essentially that the Congress can't, essentially the argument of the, of, of Trump's lawyers in Mazars uh, and in Deutsche Bank is that Congress can't investigate wrongdoing by the president. Rouse dissent actually takes that and says to everybody who has a commission essentially in the in the government um uh would would have the same rule which is so if if the court were to adopt either the uh trump's lawyer's position which is would limit investigations of the president personally largely to the impeachment uh context or the Justice Department's narrower position, which is sort of a clear statement rule uh, to the effect that, you know, if you're going to investigate the president, you've got to have a, you know, a clear statement by the body that that was intended and a clear delegation of, uh, you know, and an explanation of what the relevance of the information is. You know, I mean, that would, that would be a major uh, effect, but, uh, you know, something that could be, could be dealt with. Um, on, on the other hand, there are a number of other uh, aspects of, of these cases which uh, are perhaps less prominent but could have uh, significant effects. So obviously, this is the question of whether Congress has standing at all to uh, enforce its subpoenas. If it were decided that they do not, that would have clear implications um, for future uh, congressional uh, subpoenas and oversight. If uh, it's decided and that the one one thing that hasn't actually been contested in the Mazars and Deutsche Bank cases is that third parties can bring suits to enjoin congressional subpoenas as long as they have some sort of undefined interest in the information that's being sought, not necessarily a privilege. Um, I think, as Steve sort of alluded to, it's been understood for many years that if you have a privilege, for example, 
if your lawyer has, is being subpoenaed by Congress and uh, you're worried that attorney-client privilege, privilege information is going to be turned over, you could sue your lawyer and ask for a declaratory judgment preventing uh, the lawyer from, from turning that information over. But it's, it's not, this, the, the Mazars and Deutsche Bank cases really involve something a lot broader, which is whether there's a legitimate legislative purpose involved. And it's unclear exactly what the connection between that and the third party who's complaining about the information has to be. Um, obviously, the president has personal information that's being turned over, but he's not claiming that it's privileged. So can anyone who might be embarrassed or uh, you know, discomfited in some way by a congressional investigation now bring these third party suit? Uh, that's, that, that is an issue. And then uh, one last thing to mention is in the Ways and Means case, the grounds that the uh, Treasury Department gave for not turning over the information was that the reason that the committee gave for needing the information, that is the ostensible legislative purpose, was not the actual purpose that for which they wanted the information. And the position that the Office of Legal Counsel took to justify that position is that the even though courts will not get into the motives of Congress when they hear these cases, that the executive branch can uh, basically refuse to provide information if they think that the reason Congress is asking for it is not the actual reason that uh, reason that Congress gives is different from the actual reason that they are asking for the information, which if that becomes the practice of the executive branch, and I'm not sure why it couldn't also become the practice of private parties, uh, that could also have a very significant impact on congressional oversight. So um, sorry, I couldn't give you just one, but I think all of those <laughs> things that need to be kept an eye on. So many to choose from. Well, and I want to get in a quick plug here uh, for both of you guys, folks. Um, uh, Mike has a fantastic blog on just these sorts of issues called Point of Order. Uh, you can find online. Uh, Steve, on top of all of his other outlets, contributes to uh, the Lawfare blog, and you can find some of his writings there. Um, Steve, I, I believe, Steve, you had mentioned um, in passing the, the Vance case, and, and I wanted to ask both of you, are there any um, matters at the state level that you guys are keeping an eye on that could have an impact regarding oversight? Yeah, I mean, I do think, you know, Vance is, I mean, Vance is a microcosm of a sort of a broader question that the Supreme Court has raised but not answered, um, right? So under Clinton versus Jones, you know, the president can be sued civilly so long as it's about conduct that predated his time in office. Um, but, you know, the Supreme Court in Clinton versus Jones famously reserved, um, I say famous, you know, in my nerd circles, famously reserved um, whether the same idea would apply in state court. That is to say, whether a sitting president could also be sued for pre-presidential misconduct in state court. You know, the first time Justin that came up was actually not in the Vance case. It was in um, Summer Zervos's defamation case against President Trump. And that's already produced um, a pair of decisions from the New York state courts, um, basically saying that, yes, Clinton versus Jones should extend to state courts, that there's no special reason why state courts should be uniquely unable um, to entertain lawsuits against the sitting president, so long as it's within the Clinton versus Jones rubric of, you know, falling outside of 
conduct the president engaged in while he was president. Um, that case actually is now pending before the New York Court of Appeals, the highest court in New York. Um, but I think it's relevant to the Vance case because, you know, in Vance, you sort of have the intersection of Clinton versus Jones and, you know, U.S. versus Nixon, the Watergate tapes case, because you have a criminal subpoena as opposed to a congressional subpoena, albeit one issued by a local as opposed to federal prosecutor. Um, and I think, you know, the the briefing, you know, there is complete in the Supreme Court on whether the court should grant cert. We might know as soon as next Friday, the 13th, if they're going to. It, it wouldn't shock me if actually the court sits that one out. Um, but it also wouldn't shock me if they grant cert just because wholly apart from the merits, the justices have historically shown, you know, special procedural solicitude to the president when he's sued personally. Um, and so there are a series of obscure and super sort of weedsy doctrines about appellate jurisdiction and the timing of appeals where the court has basically bent over backwards to accommodate a sitting president in ways that it hasn't other parties, even where the president ultimately loses on the merits. So, you know, I think the, the state court cases are interesting. It's possible that, you know, we're going to end up this whole conversation in, you know, eight months or, you know, a year, um, having cemented the power of state courts to do just the same stuff that federal courts can do vis-a-vis a sitting president. Um, but I still think it's largely a sideshow compared to the broader separation of powers questions about Congress versus the president and really Congress versus the executive branch more broadly. I mean, even if President Trump somehow ekes out a win in one of these state court cases, it's not going to be in a way that really, I think, will prejudice one way or the other um, the questions we've been talking about when it comes to Congress versus the president. Thank you. That's helpful. And I guess it would be fair to note as well that while many of these um, suits pose a threat of of undetermined size to uh, congressional oversight authorities, what we've seen so far is, uh, a, a, you know, a, an increasing line of decisions affirming Congress's power to conduct oversight in large part. Um, so, well, and, 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 just, and just and in that respect, I, mean, I do think it's worth noting. I think actually that one strategic mistake that the president's lawyers have made here is you know, historically. I mean, and and if I can plug a book, there's a fantastic book by my friend and, and soon-to-be short-term colleague Josh Chaffetz called Congress's Constitution. Um, that sort of looks at some of the ways in which Congress has exerted oversight authority and regulatory authority over the executive branch historically. And, you know, I think Josh would be the first to say that historically disputes between Congress and the executive branch over these kinds of questions um, tend not to be decided in the courts. They tend to be decided through negotiation and compromise. And the courts are well aware of this. And so there are plenty of judicial decisions where courts have said, you know, we're going to sort of leave it to the parties to figure it out. Um, and I think the president, you know, especially through the, the letter from White House counsel, you know, Pat Chip alone saying, we're not going to cooperate at all. We're not going to do anything. We are categorically refusing to even talk to you about compromises when it comes to any of these subpoenas. Um, if nothing else, I actually think that letter, depending upon your perspective, either gave the courts an excuse to be a little bit more aggressive or forced the court's hand to, you know, not just sort of sit back and wait for the political process to resolve these disputes. Um, and I'm not sure in retrospect that that was helpful if the goal from the president's perspective was to run out the clock in these cases, because, you know, I think the courts are actually moving a little quicker in these disputes than they have historically, probably still not quick enough for many, um, but quicker relatively, I think, at least in part, because there's no 
plausible expectation that there's any avenue for political reconciliation here. Uh, and I think the, the strategy of running out the clock, if that were the strategy, would be unusual given that so many clocks appear to be running out uh, in the middle of an election year, uh, or set to run out in the middle of an election year, uh, potentially with uh, high-profile Supreme Court decisions. Um, that's, uh, that's, pretty tough, uh, that's pretty tough to, to work against. Um, I want to uh, recognize where we are on time. We have a couple minutes. Uh, uh, Mike, do you have any last thoughts? Well, I would. Uh, I, I agree with what Steve said about the chip alone letter. I think that that backfired uh, badly on the administration, and I personally can't believe that uh, chip alone would have sent that letter if it had been up to him. Uh, it just I, that had to have come in my 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 judgment from from the president personally because it, it just was not a from a strategic point of view. I, I think it was a, a terrible. Um, a terrible thing for the administration. Uh, so the last thing I guess I would say is, you know, we've got all these cases. Uh, there's going to be a lot of decisions coming out. There's already a lot of different things that the courts have opined on that perhaps no one had thought about or had, people had thought had been decided 50 years ago. Uh, I think there will be a long period when, after these cases shake out where Congress will be looking at what sort of a landscape, <laughs> the, the, uh, the after nuclear bomb landscape that it's faced with in terms of what the, uh, what its oversight powers and particularly its enforcement powers are and what needs to be done to sort of beef those up and to, and to prevent uh, a situation like this happening again. Uh, because I don't think, Frankly, anyone really would want to, us to be in this situation as a country where we have these this sort of standoff between the branches along, along sort of a just a total uh, front of, of different information requests. Uh, so I think there's going to be uh, a lot of analysis and a lot of thinking that needs to be done in terms of uh, reforms uh, in Congress and uh, maybe in statute. Uh, going forward. Thank you. Uh, a huge thank you to both of you, Mike and Steve, for participating in this and sharing your thoughts and insight. Um, I need to note that Steve is on loan to us for the afternoon from the Constitution Project at POGO. I'm with the Congressional Oversight Initiative at POGO. You can find out more about both of those programs and other offerings uh, at pogo.org. Thank you all uh, who dialed in for this briefing. Um, if you have thoughts, questions, or comments, we love your feedback on these calls. Um, you can email them directly to me at justinrood at pogo.org. That's J-U-S-T-I-N-R-O-O-D, like door backwards, at pogo.org. Thanks so much, everyone. Have a great weekend.